you know, words, words are a powerful thing. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Now, this is the same idea about the power of the power of our words that James communicates in James chapter 3. And in James chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, James writes this. He says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This is quite the picture that James paints about how powerful our words are and our words can be in the lives of others. And unfortunately, we live in a world and in a culture that does not value using words in a way that brings life. We're surrounded by a world that consistently uses words to deceive, to manipulate, to control other people. And we see the first instance of this in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. And in this familiar uh, section of Scripture, Adam and Eve, we know they've been created perfect by God. They're without sin and they live in a sinless world. And God has declared that all of his creation was good. Not only that, but God had a personal relationship with Adam and Eve. And then into this perfect picture, Satan comes and Satan tempts Eve. Satan uses words to deceive Eve. He twists the commands that God has given them. And he he uses it to paint the picture of a God who actually commands out of a selfish desire for power. He paints God as the master manipulator who is withholding something good. Satan lies and deceives, and and Eve believes Satan's evaluation of God over what she has seen and over what she has known to be true about God. And through the use of words that were intended to manipulate and control, our world has been plunged into sin. And ever since, humanity has been following Satan's tactics. And we see this in all different kinds of areas. There are actually some professions that have a reputation this way. Right? They have a reputation for skirting the truth, for using words and phrases to their advantage for personal gain, for professions that thrive on presenting something as reality that is not. And one example that, and this wouldn't be true of all in this profession, obviously, but they definitely have that reputation. And one example I've seen is with military recruiters. Okay, so as most of you know, I spent some time in the Navy uh, teaching. And I remember one time I was talking to a student, and I was just asking them about why they joined the Navy. And he told me that he joined the Navy uh, because he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. It took me a second to respond because he was at a Navy school to become a nuclear power plant operator on a submarine or an aircraft carrier. Not what you think to become a Navy SEAL. So I'm sure I gave him a funny look when I asked him, well, why did you go into the nuclear side of the Navy if you wanted to become a Navy SEAL? He told me, well, my recruiter told me the easiest way to become a Navy SEAL is to go nuclear because they like, you know, Navy SEALs to have lots of different experience. Well, I probably don't have to tell you that was completely and totally a lie. People who are part of the nuclear Navy do not go into the Navy SEALs. His recruiter lied to him. 
He lied to him for a very specific reason, because it's hard to get individuals who qualify to be in the nuclear side of the Navy. But it looks really good for a recruiter if they can. That's the only reason. The recruiter uses words to lie to this naive young man, convincing him to go in a direction he didn't want to go, and it was all for the personal gain of that recruiter. But it's not just individuals who use their words in this way. History is full of examples of actually people in power and governments who use words to manipulate and control their own population. All we have to do is turn to the news right now and we can see this in action in Russia. The Russian government is controlling the script in their own country in regard to this war in Ukraine in order to try to control and to manipulate their own people to keep them in line. These are intentional lies that are used to deceive, to manipulate, and to control. To bring it a little more personally, I'm certain every person in this room has experienced someone using the destructive power of words in your life in this way. Someone who has used deceptive, empty, worthless words to manipulate and control you so they could get something from you. The deepest damage that can be done to a person is through the use of words. And when you've been lied to and you've been deceived by those around you, it hurts deeply and intensely. There's this depth of loneliness that you can feel in that situation. And being exploited in this way leads to an intense desire and a longing to just feel safe. So as we look around and we, we feel surrounded by this kind of world, by these kinds of people who use words in this way, what are we to do? How are we to respond? Where are we to turn? Where are we to go? And with that in mind, let's read Psalm chapter 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So the, the main idea, the big takeaway that I want us to get from this morning is that we can have a confident assurance in the promises of God, because God's word is true. I'll say that one more time. We can have a confident assurance in the promises of God, because God's word is true. And before we dive into the psalm, I want to lay out the structure so that we can see the road we're going to be journeying on together. This psalm is broken into two main sections, which if you have the notes, you can see that. You can see it laid out in your handout. The first section of the psalm is verses 1 through 4, which describes these deceptive words of the wicked. In verses 5 through 8, the psalmist is going to contrast the deceptive words of the wicked with the true words of God. So we're going to start off this morning by looking at the deceptive words of the wicked. 
And he starts the psalm in verse 1 by crying out to God. So we start by crying out to God for help against the wicked. And we see that in verse 1, for help against the wicked. He says, save, O Lord. And the word he uses for save is a cry for deliverance from some kind of external evil. So there's something going on outside of the psalmist that has him in distress and in need of rescue. So the question is, what does the psalmist want deliverance from? Why is he in such distress? And the rest of verse 1 tells us why. He says, the godly one is gone. The psalmist looks around him and is in distress because he feels alone in a sea of godless people. And he's using extreme language to express the depth of what he's feeling during this time. He is feeling, or he's experiencing external evil, and as he looks around, he despairs, and he can't see any godly around him. And godly one there is actually the root of that is the, the Hebrew word hesed. This is a word for loving kindness, and it's often used in reference to God and his unconditional covenantal love towards his people. And the psalmist is looking around, and he feels like there is none, there is none out there like this. He is alone. And he expounds upon this by saying the faithful have vanished. The faithful have disappeared. They're gone from among the children of man, meaning there's no one else left that is faithful but me. They're all gone, and he feels utterly and completely alone. And we can see this clearly from a passage in the Old Testament from 1 Kings. During that time when the the Jewish people, just a little context, they were split between Israel and the northern kingdom and Judah and the southern kingdom. And there was one particularly wicked king in the north called Ahab. And we're all probably really familiar with his wife, who is Jezebel. And during his reign, Elijah the prophet comes and he proclaims judgment, judgment against Ahab, judgment against his kingdom. And he says, it is not going to rain again until I say so. So God stops the rain, and it doesn't rain in Israel for three years. And they experience a severe drought. And at the end of three years, Elijah comes back, and he has that famous showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where the, pro- the prophets of Baal, they put their sacrifice out, and they call on Baal to, to consume the sacrifice with fire. And of course, nothing happens, because Baal isn't real. And then Elijah, he sets up the sacrifice. He prays to God. God sends down a consuming fire in front of everyone gathered. It's this amazing moment, and it's such an amazing moment. The people are rallying with Elijah. He has the prophets of Baal rounded up, and they slaughter and kill all the prophets of Baal that are there that day. And then God answers Elijah's prayer, and it starts to rain in Israel. Now, this would seem like a great victory in the life of Elijah. You think he'd be full of joy and he would rejoice. However, as you can imagine, Jezebel isn't happy about her prophets being killed. And so she decides to go after Elijah and to have him killed. So Elijah flees. He flees to Mount Horeb and he hides in a cave. And after being so faithful to God, Elijah is actually now in despair. He's done everything God has asked of him. And yet he feels that he is all alone that he is surrounded by faithless people, that there is no one godly left except himself. And in the depth of that moment, Elijah cries out to God, and he says in 1 Kings 19.10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, 
For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah looks around and, and he feels alone. He feels like there's no one else out there. He's completely surrounded by godless and faithless people while he has remained faithful. And that is what's that, that same idea, that is what is being expressed in this psalm. The psalmist has been faithful to God. He's been obedient to God. And he looks around and he feels that there's no one else. Like all the faithful and godly ones have left him, leaving him surrounded by the wicked. And in the middle of that kind of despair, he calls out to God and he cries out to God for salvation or for deliverance. He cries out to God for rescue from these faithless people. Well, as the psalmists look around, they ask the question, what are these wicked people doing? What are they doing that has him in such despair? In what way are they being faithless? In what way are they being ungodly? Well, the psalmist actually answers that question in verse 2 by giving a description of the character of the wicked. So we see that in verse 2, that the psalmist is going to describe the character of the wicked that surround him. And we'll notice that all the character descriptions, all the ways that the psalmist describes these wicked people is by the use of their tongue, how they use their words. So we see this in verse 2. It says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So the first characteristic we see is lies. He says they utter lies. They're liars. He says everyone utters lies to his neighbor. The wicked here are described that way. So, but so that we get the sense of this word, it goes deeper than just saying something that isn't true. The sense of this word is an emptiness of speech. In other words, this is speech. This is using words that have absolutely no value or use. They are worthless, empty words. But not only are they described as liars. Second, the emptiness of their speech is actually further described as he says, says they have flattering lips. It's interesting that word, the word here for flattering is actually understood as smoothness. In other words, these wicked people, they have smooth lips. Right? Slipperiness. Nothing sticks. A, a common phrase that we might say is that, oh yeah, that person is a smooth talker. We all know the smooth talker, right? This is the person who uses flattering words towards someone. But it's not for that someone's good. The smooth talker is using empty and worthless words in order to get from the other person. So this phrase describes a person who shapes words in such a way to appeal to the ego of the listener in order to exploit them and to hide the truth. The intent here. To be clear, the intent here is to deceive. This, this wicked person wants to deceive someone else and is using this kind of speech to do so. And we see that reinforced lastly. He uses the word, he says that they, uh, they speak from a double heart. A double heart. So in what way do these wicked people have a double heart? What is he trying to communicate there? Well, it's often thought of, we, we tend to think of something like this in an English metaphor of someone being double-minded or being uncertain. 
But that, however, is not the case here. This isn't describing someone who has doubts, but someone who's using words to deceive others. In other words, this person has a double standard. They know one thing but say another. They wouldn't use the truth even though they know it because lying in this way actually accomplishes their goal. So think about this is what this phrase is trying to say. They speak with one heart, yet the truth is in another heart. So they speak from a double heart. So this is the, the character of the wicked. But why are they using empty, worthless, and deceptive words? Why are they intentionally hiding the truth from others? And the psalmist makes this clear in verses 3 and 4. He describes the motivation, the motivation of the wicked. And in verses 3 and 4, he says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. So these wicked people, they're using their words to control and to manipulate others. They believe that by using their words in this way, they will prevail. They see how it benefits them, and there's this feeling of invincibility. They believe that their mastery of words gives them power and control over others and makes them winners. The personal power they have is at the cost of the truth, but they don't care about that. They don't care who they have to exploit in order to maintain their power and control. And as we'll see in the second half of the psalm, it's actually the needy and the poor that are taken advantage of. These wicked people will use whoever they have to in order to maintain their power and control. They believe that as long as they have their lips, as long as they are able to speak, who could be master of them? Well, this is a rhetorical question, right? For they believe that the answer to that question is no one. No one could be. As long as they're able to speak, there is no one who could be master of them. Well, at the onset of World War I, the military needed watches and they needed dials that could be seen in the dark. Something to help them as they were waging war. In just 20 years prior, Marie Curie and her husband had discovered radium. Now, a compound that contained radium, when they painted it on watch faces and dials, would glow in the dark. Exactly what they needed. It worked really well, and it worked for a long time. The properties of radium were not well known at the time, and the radium dial company hired hundreds of girls to come and to hand-paint the radium compound onto these watches and dials. Women were used because their smaller hands were perfect, perfect for this detailed kind of work. And the process, they actually taught the process that they taught the girls in order to paint this radium compound onto the watch faces and the dials was that they would put the tip of the brush in their mouth to make a point, they'd dip it in the compound, and then they'd paint. And then to do the next one, they'd put the tip of the brush back in their mouth, compound, paint. And they'd do that over and over and over again for hours a day, never washing the compound off the brush before they put it in their mouth. So over the process of years, right, these women ingested a large amount of radium while they were doing their work. Well, as time went on, women started having severe medical complications. 
And nobody knew why, because really nobody at the time knew what the true effect of radium was on the body. They actually thought that there were health benefits to it. Well, the corporation did research and actually determined, determined that there was a link. There was a link between the medical condition of these girls and the radium. They, the corporation had evidence that what they were making these girls do was actually killing them. They knew the truth, and they intentionally covered it up in order to keep making money. They had a high demand for their product, and changing their practices to keep these girls safe would have affected their bottom line. So instead of revealing the truth, they hid the truth, and they actually told the girls the opposite. They assured them and the public that everything was fine, there was nothing to worry about, what they were doing was completely safe. And as a result, they cost the lives of many, many of these women. They destroyed their bodies as they ingested radioactive radium. And the men who ran this company used empty, meaningless, smooth words to lie and to deceive in order to get from these women no matter the cost. And they thought they were invincible. Who could stop them? And this is the motivation of those who use their words in this way from the psalm. And in describing their motivation, the psalmist actually follows us up and asks God to stop these people. We see that in verse 3, to stop these people. He cries out to God to cut off their flattering lips, cut out their lying tongue. Well, if you cut out somebody's tongue and you cut off their lips, the end result is they could no longer speak. And that is the point of what he's trying to ask God to do. He's using that imagery to ask God to stop them. Put God, would you put an end to their deceptive words? Would you stop it? Well, imagine with me for a moment that you were one of these women. Right? You've been given worthless and smooth words that promise safety and protection, but only result in death and destruction. And as your body is wasting away because of their lies, where could you turn? As a Christian, where could you find hope in the middle of this kind of despair, this sense of hopelessness, this sense of loneliness? And for that, let's now turn from the deceptive words of the wicked to the true words of God, and let's see where the psalmist goes to find hope. So we're going to see that in verses 5 through 8, which I'm going to read again. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Well, the first truth that the psalmist goes to to find hope is in the fact that God sees. And we see this in the first half of verse 5, that God sees. The psalmist quoting God says, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan. And the psalmist actually uses, he uses two different words in this verse to describe the plight of these victims. He describes them as poor and needy. And these express people who are in an afflicted or a wretched state. These are people who are poor financially, but even deeper than that, they're oppressed. This is an oppressed and an afflicted person who feels the weight of it. They are beaten down. And, and the extreme nature of this is also 
expressed in the fact that they are plundered. Right? Plundered, that word, this is violent or destructive action. It actually is often used in the Old Testament to describe destruction as a result of war or conquest. And this is violence to such a degree that causes damage that seemingly cannot be repaired. And that is the effect that these wicked people have on those they oppress. But don't miss the fact that God knows the poor are plundered because he sees them in their affliction. God sees and he knows everything that is happening. We may feel alone or we may feel like God doesn't see and he doesn't know, but he does. Where is God in those moments? He is right there with you. He sees you and what you are going through. And in Psalm 56, David expresses, he expresses the same idea in verse 8 when he says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God sees every tear. He sees every pain, every moment of your life. He sees you. But not only does God see you, in the second half, and also there in the first half of verse 5, he hears you. He doesn't just see you, he hears you. The psalmist says, because the needy groan. God sees the affliction of the poor, and he hears the cries of the needy. We may feel like nobody hears us. The radium girls, they spent years trying to find a single person who would listen to them. For years, nobody would believe them when they said it was because of their work with radium that caused their medical problems. Doctors wouldn't listen. Dentists wouldn't listen. Scientists wouldn't listen. Lawyers wouldn't listen. Corporations wouldn't listen. Sometimes their families wouldn't listen. And this is how we oftentimes feel. Like we're surrounded by wicked people who prosper, and there's nobody who knows, and there's nobody who listens. And that may be true for people, but it is not true with God. He sees you, and He hears you. And since God hears you, he wants you to come to him. He wants you to bring these things to him. He wants you to cry out to him. And what should we cry out to God for in these moments when we feel this way? Well, just as a psalmist, we should cry out to God for deliverance. We saw that in verse 1. And for God to bring an end to the lies and deception. We saw that in verse 3. There is nothing wrong with asking God for these things. We see this time and time again in the Psalms. A cry for deliverance and a cry for judgment. But not only does God see you, not only does God hear you, but we see in the second half of verse 5, but that he, God will act. God will act. The Lord says that because he sees the affliction of the poor, because he hears the cries of the needy, he will now arise. He will not sit idly by and do nothing in response to what he sees and what he hears. He will, stand, he will not stand by coldly and indifferently to what is going on. He will arise. He will be moved to action. And if God will arise and do something, the first question is, when will God do this? When will God arise? When will he take action? And we ask this question because we look around us and it seems like nothing changes. 
Sometimes it seems like no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter how many times we take it to God, nothing happens. Yet here, God is promising that He will act in response to what He sees and what He hears. So when is God going to do something? And the word that the author uses here is now. Now this word can mean different things in relation to time, but in this verse it's referring to imminent or the impending future. So what does that mean? probably easiest to understand it in relation to what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God's response will be the next thing that happens in chronological time. But it does mean that there is a promise of deliverance in the future. This is a future promise of action. And this is important for us to understand and a point that the psalmist is going to come back to at the end of the psalm. God is promising to do something But we don't know when it will happen. But what we do know is that it will happen in God's timing. The second question this raises is, well, when he does act, when God does do something, what is he going to do? How is he going to respond to what he sees and what he hears in regard to the poor and the needy? This is an encouraging word for us this morning. God says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. As we talked about earlier, the desire of people oppressed this way is for safety. They've been hurt, and they want to know they're safe and to feel safe, and God promises that at some point in the future, they will be delivered from the hurt they have or are experiencing and brought to a place where they are free from danger, a place where they are safe. God sees, God hears, and God will act. This is the promise of God to your heart and to my heart this morning as we suffer from those who use deceptive words in our lives. God promises that he sees, that he hears, he will act, and he will bring you to a place of safety one day. Well, God has made these promises. However, that that begs one more question. How can we know How can we know that God will fulfill what he has promised to do? How can we know for certain that that God does see, he does hear, and he will act to bring deliverance one day? That, That would be a natural question to ask. We would need to know, in order to answer it, we need to know something about the character of God in order to to be able to trust his promises. If God said the words but didn't have the character to back it up, then the words would be meaningless. They would be empty. They would mean nothing. They would have no value, and they would bring no comfort. So what about the character of God will assure us that he is going to follow through with what he has promised? And that brings us to verse 6. Verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. How can you and I trust God's promises? We can trust God's promises because God's words are true. This is the crucial point in this psalm. The entire psalm hints upon this truth. Against the backdrop of the deceptive words of man are the true words 
of God. The words of God are like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. What is, he, what is he getting at with that imagery? Well, when silver is mined out of the ground, it's not 100% silver. It's silver mixed with impurities. So in order to get out the impurities and have pure silver, there has to be a refining process. And in that refining process, all impurities are removed and all you're left with at the end of the day, pure silver. And this is the point. God's word is true. It is pure. In other words, it has absolutely no impurity in it. As opposed to the false, empty, vain, useless, deceptive words of these evil people, God's word is always true, always useful, and always full of substance. I cannot stress this point enough. I cannot stress the importance of understanding and being convinced of this truth about God's words. <clears throat> what is the only hope we have in the middle of life circumstances when other people use their words so hurtfully or so flippantly when people use their words with no value or substance? The only hope you and I have this morning is in the promises of God. And the only hope we have is in the promises of God that He will save us. And these only bring comfort because of the character of the one who makes the promise. Because God is truthful by His very nature, then His words are absolutely true. Purely true. 100% true all the time. And there's only one place, one place in which we can hear God speaking to us. It isn't magical. It isn't mystical. All that God wants us to know, everything He has communicated so that we could know Him is contained in the pages of Scripture. All of God's words, every single word that He has given to us are contained in the pages of Scripture and they are pure. They are true. They are without any impurity. In Scripture, we have the only source of objective truth about God. And these pages are filled with God's promises. And we can know with 100% certainty that God will do what He has promised because God's words are true. So in the face of that, what, what should our response be to the truthfulness of God's words? How should, how should we respond? And there are two responses that I see in verse 7. Verse 7 says, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. This first response is one of comfort. Like, like the psalmist, we should be comforted by the fact that God's words are true. This truth should bring comfort to our hearts. Notice in this psalm how the attitude of the psalmist changes. He starts off feeling alone and hopeless. He feels as though he is the only faithful one left. God responds with a promise. He responds with a promise to see, to hear, and to respond. And in that promise, the psalmist finds comfort. And so should we. 
we should be comforted in God's promises in his word because his word is true. But not only does the fact that God's words are true bring comfort to the psalmist, but it also grows his trust in God. In verse 7, he expresses a confident assurance in God's promises. He expresses an assurance. He is now sure and he is confident that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. At the beginning of the psalm, he doubted. He felt like he was on shaky ground. But as God reminded him who he is, this grew the psalmist's trust in God no matter what he saw, no matter what he experienced. We should be comforted by God's promises and we should trust God's promises because God's word is true. I want your heart and I want mine to be comforted this morning. I want your, your heart and mine to be encouraged. I, I want your heart and my heart to grow in our trust of God because we know that God's word, every single thing that he has revealed to us in scripture is true. All of it. But notice that the comfort the psalmist feels and the trust that has grown inside of him are not because his circumstances are changed. And this is the point of verse 8. Verse 8 says, and it seems like when you're reading this psalm, it seems strange that you get to the end and the psalmist says, on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The first almost seems out of place, but it's important Because it demonstrates that nothing in the present, for the psalmist, the one who's writing this, there's nothing in the present circumstances that has actually changed. At the end of this psalm, God has not stopped the destructive and deceptive words of these people. They're still walking around. They're still using their words to manipulate and control. They still think no one can stop them. None of that has changed. His circumstances haven't changed. Well, if the circumstances for the psalm, if they haven't changed, then what has? What is different? What is different is that the psalmist now has a greater confidence in the character of God. The the psalmist has a deeper trust in the character of God. He is confidently resting in the truthfulness of God. In other words, the change is not an external change that has occurred by the end of the psalm, but an internal one. Psalmist is still hurting. He's still experiencing pain as a result of the lying, smooth-talking, double-hearted, deceitful, deceptive words of these people. But now, the difference is, but now the psalmist faces those circumstances with a renewed confidence and trust in the Word of God. That's the point. This is where we should land. We should land with a renewed confidence and trust in the Word of God despite the surrounding circumstances. Listen, there's a general truth here that is so important for your heart, for mine this morning. It's a general truth throughout all of Scripture. The most important thing in your life as a believer is to know God. The most important thing in your life is that you would grow in your relationship with God. In other words, that you would grow in your knowledge and in your understanding and your comprehension of who God is. That you would have a clear understanding of His character. That you would be overwhelmed with the glory and the majesty of this God that we serve. 
And the only reason that the psalmist in these verses can land on a confident assurance that God will do what he says he's going to do is because he has meditated on the character of God. He can't look around at his circumstances and be convinced. He can't look at his life and be convinced because when he looks around, all he sees are lies, deception, deceitfulness, and all he feels is loneliness. Yet when he's reminded of God, he is comforted and his trust grows regardless, regardless of the circumstances. This means that in the middle of whatever life circumstance you find yourself in, Turn to God and his word. Turn to the only source of comfort and hope that you can have. That's in the perfect, without error, completely trustworthy word of God. Read it. Know it. Trust it. Because it is true. Every word, every promise, and as you're reading God's word, as you're meditating on God's word, as you're thinking and spending time in God's word, ask this question to yourself as you read it. What does this that I'm reading right now, what does it show me about the character of God? You can trust that God will do as he promised because his word is true. At the beginning in the garden, Satan used his words to lie and to deceive, to manipulate and control. But Satan's word was not the last word. Immediately following, God made a promise. He promised Adam and Eve that he would send a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. God fulfilled that promise in sending the true word of God, Jesus Christ, into the sinful world. And Jesus brought deliverance from sin in himself. Jesus offers the only source of true safety, which is in relationship with him. And although we may never experience the safety that we long for from the wicked in this life, God has made another promise. He has promised that Jesus will return one day. And when Jesus returns, he will right all wrongs. When Jesus returns, he will answer the cry of the psalmist's heart by bringing judgment against liars and safety to the oppressed. No matter the circumstances, God sees you, he hears you, and he will deliver you one day. We can have a confident assurance in the promises of God because God's word is true, even if our present circumstances don't change. Let us pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word this morning. God, thank you that when you came, you created, God, thank you that when you created this world, that you didn't leave us wondering about who you are. You didn't leave us wondering about who you are and what you do and how we should respond to you, God, but you have chosen in your infinite kindness and your wisdom and your grace to give us the special revelation in Scripture of you. And God, I pray this morning that our hearts would be encouraged and would be comforted in the truth that your word, your communication to everything that you have told us and revealed to us in your word is absolutely true. We can know it we can trust it, we can be comforted by it, and we can believe 
that everything that you have said that you are going to do in your word, that you will absolutely do, no matter what the circumstances around us tell us. So from this place, God, I pray that we would be comforted. God, I pray that our trust in you would grow. And God, I pray that our confidence and our assurance in the truthfulness of your word would also grow as we know that you are a truthful God. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.